0: Every worldview has unanswered questions. It offers a line of evidence, but it stops short of the goal. I'm just suggesting that this one has the shortest step. Not only that, this one has a step, that, if it's true, will be completely filled because you'll be able to ask and answer your questions one day in front of your creator.
1: Welcome to the Decision Point podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hobson, president of Decision Point, where our mission is to proclaim the gospel to the next generation till every student has heard. Uh, Decision Point is calling the next generation of young leaders to stand for Christ, to live for Christ, to witness for Christ and endure hardship for his name because he is worth it. And across the country and soon we pray around the world, we are seeing a generation of young leaders, middle school students, high school students rising up to answer the high call of Christ on their lives. And last week and this week, we're talking about what does it mean to stand for Christ as people committed to the truth of God's word. You know, we can believe the Bible and want to still ask some questions about it. Maybe that people are asking us, or maybe that even our own uh, good thinking, uh, analytical thinking is, is coming up with some good questions about how can we have good confidence that the Bible is reliable and that it's trustworthy. The Bible is the most attacked book of all time, and the Bible is also the most trustworthy and reliable book at all time, and it's good for us to think about these things together. And to help me with that, we are so excited to have Detective J. Warner Wallace, a former cold case homicide detective, which if you're not sure what that means, I had to look it up. It means this guy was not only a detective of homicides, but also of homicides that had happened years ago that other people weren't able to solve. Some of them actually, uh, after the person who committed the crime and even witnessed the crime had both died, and he was able to solve the case. That's impressive. Uh, he's the author of Cold Case Christianity, which you're going to want to buy after listening to this episode. But be, without further ado, uh, Jim, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for coming back. God, I'm glad we, we barely even started last time we were talking. So now we, get <laughs> we, to, now we get to deep dive. We just got to thinking like a detective, and the time ran out. So thanks for coming back on today. Last time you were with us, you gave us four ways to start thinking like a detective. You said you got to know there's there's what types of evidence there are. There's direct and indirect. You said both of them are all the same. You said don't be a no at all. You got to keep your options open while you're doing the investigation. You talked about this principle. If I got it right, uh, I'm I'm slow, but you said abductive reasoning, uh, looking at the evidence and looking at the best, looking at all explanations and deciding which explanation best explains the evidence. Did I get that right? That's correct. That's abductive thinking. Okay, I passed that test. And then you said you got to test your witnesses. You're going to have to review for us the four tests of a witness uh, today. I got them down, but you'll say it better than
0: I would. Well, let's use this chance together to just deep dive that last issue. How do you test an eyewitness? Because this is what it comes down to for most of us. When we get challenged or we start to doubt it ourselves because we're thinking, well, you know, how do I know this? This seems like such an outlandish claim that number one, that God exists for a lot of people, that's an outlandish claim or that Jesus is who he said he was and all these miracle accounts and then the resurrection recorded in the gospels. I remember thinking as a non believer, because I was a non believer until I was 35, I remember thinking, you know, I can believe a lot about Jesus, but I, the buck stops for me right there at that first miracle. I'm not going to give up on the whole Jesus story. I'm just suggesting, I would have said that all those miracles, including the resurrection, those have got to be additions. They've got to be the things that aren't. Look, in every, you ever play that game where you, you tell a lie, you know, and you got to spot who's telling the lie? And, and if you've ever done this in a, in a group setting, you know what you end up typically doing. The best liars are people who tell a lot of truth and then just add a little bit of a lie. So it feels like it's true because most of it is. And then they add the one little bit of a lie. That's what I kind of consider the gospel to be. And the lies were all the things that were supernatural because I was a committed philosophical naturalist. If you can't explain it with space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry, I'm out. So every step that's outside of nature... Uh, I'm, I'm not interested. Now, the reason, let me tell you, I, I overcame that hurdle because if you stop and think about the features of the universe, the fact that we're in a universe that has a beginning, the fact that the universe appears to be designed even by people who aren't, aren't believers, they, they recognize the appearance of fine-tuning of the universe, the fact that origin of life begins without from inorganic, from or, just from matter to biology. How does, that, how does that happen? Where, by the way, researchers are still trying to scratch their head on that one. Third, or fourth rather, that there appears to be design in biology. That's also, for the most part, accepted by lots. Even Richard Dawkins, the famed atheist, believes there's an appearance of design, even though he denies there's a designer. And you have a consciousness. You have a, 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 a more than just a brain. We have a, a, a conscious mind. Where does, how do you get that from a material universe? How do you get the immaterial mind? And then you have free agency. How do you get that from a universe governed by just dominoes touching each other, all the physics of the universe, yet you can jump out of that and make free choices? How does that work? And then we have this sense of morality. Where do we ground that? How do we ground that? We even think that there's a standard by which we can judge something and call it evil. Well, let me ask you, those eight attributes of the universe, it turns out you can't get any of them with space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. You're going to have to jump outside the room for those. And that's once I realized that, that I already believed that there was a bunch of stuff, even as a philosophical naturalist, that I could not explain with philosophical naturalism, I started to ask myself, well, look, if those things are best explained by a being that's outside of space, time, and matter, what am I getting so hung up over? The biggest miracles of this being would not be anything in the Gospels. It would be creating everything from nothing. There's something out there that can create everything from nothing Then I'm guessing it could step into its stuff that's created and walk on water. (laughs) That's a small potato miracle compared to everything from nothing. So I just had to open open my hand a little bit on that and read the Gospels in a different way, but I just still wanted to test them. So I just want to cover that four point test with you. Now we can't deep dive it the way we would in a book, but I will tell you the uh, kind of the thirty thousand foot you know view of it. First of all, is it is it written early enough to have been written by eyewitnesses? Now that's how do you test that? Well, I think there are a number of things missing from the New Testament that should be there if it was written after 70 AD. Now, we talked about in the last episode how stuff that's not in, a, uh, su- it's not just what a suspect says that you count as evidence, you often will count something he should have said but failed to say. That also has evidential value in front of a jury. And when you look at the New Testament, there's stuff in there that should be in there that, that the authors failed to say. Uh, Luke, who writes the book of Acts, I mean, if he's going to be right, he wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And he wrote the gospel of Luke first. And in that gospel of Luke, he predicts that Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. Yet when the uh, temple is destroyed in 70 AD, Luke fails to mention it in the gospel, in the book of Acts. This is a chance to prove that Jesus was an accurate forecaster, an accurate prophet, a predictor of the future. Yet he fails to, he doesn't describe the, the siege of Jerusalem either, which is would be a huge, how do you not? It's like writing a story about New York in the 2000s, yet failing to mention the twin tower attack. Jerusalem suffered tremendously, yet he never mentions it. He never mentions the death of Paul. Paul's still alive at the book end of the book of Acts. We know he he died in in the you know in the sixties, uh, early sixties in Rome. He doesn't mention the death of Peter. Doesn't mention the death of James, their brother of Jesus. Yet he does mention the death of James, their brother of John. That, in the 44, about forty four, forty five, 45, is when James, the brother of John, is killed, and it's in the book of Acts. Yet the three most important characters in the book of Acts, James, the brother of Jesus, Peter, and Paul, he doesn't mention their death. Well, because it hasn't happened yet. So you can't mention the destruction of the temple or the siege or the deaths of those three play, three, three main players. He also doesn't mention the death of Barnabas. Why? Because those things haven't happened yet. And I just simply started to make a list of all the things that are missing and where they are on the timeline, and you can bring back, and you can figure out when did Paul, or when did Luke, rather, write the book of Acts. And you know he wrote the Gospel of Luke before, so now you can date that a little earlier. And it turns out that there's good reasons I talk about in the book to see that he's referencing earlier Gospels in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And one of those Gospels I think he's mentioning is the Gospel of Mark, so I think you even go earlier in the Gospel of Mark. So why does this matter? It matters because the Gospels are written early enough to have been written by one eyewitnesses and two in front of people who would have known better. And that's 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 a risky thing to do. This is why Paul in First Corinthians can say, that, "Hey, Corinthian church, there's there's five hundred people plus who saw the risen Christ on the same day. Most of whom are still alive. You could talk to them." How can you say that if there aren't 500 people that you could actually talk to? And You're taking a bold chance that no one's going to follow up on your claim. So I think in the end, the most reasonable inference is these are written early. And by the way, that one issue solves a lot of other stuff. Because, it. you know, you could ask the question, well, how do you think, well, if, if they're written early, Well, then you can see that they're not only written early, but all those alleged contradictions that people talk about, oh, they're different, they're so different. Well, you don't think they would have caught that early? Why did they leave them in? Because they understood, look, this is our perspective, that's his perspective, this is all true, here you go. It's a puzzle we can puzzle. But early dating helps us to see, because it's one thing if you say, well, they're all written 300, 300 years later by anonymous authors. Okay, I get that all the time, are they anonymous? Okay, really? You think if these were written by anonymous authors, they would put someone's name on it, like Mark? No, you put like Philip on
1: it. Hey, watch it, watch it. My name's Mark. Yes,
0: I know, I know. But Mark is <laughs> but Mark is not nowhere to be found on the on the action during the during the Gospels. I mean, if you're going to fake an account and you want it to be credible to people who you're trying to fool, how about using a name from somebody who's actually in the account instead? Mark is just he wrote it because he was sitting at Peter's feet. No, he's in, the, he's in the gospel. He's in the book of Acts, but he's not in the gospels. So, so, I mean, why would you use Luke? Luke will tell you, I wasn't there for Jesus. I was there with Paul. I, I had to talk to the eyewitnesses, he says in the first chapter, to write this stuff about Jesus. So, so I think in the end, there's just a brutal honesty about the gospels that I think was favorable but that's the first criteria. Are they early enough? I I checked that box. I think they're early enough. The second one is, you know, is there corroborative evidence? This is one, I teach a class at Biola. It takes 18 hours to go through this part of the book. There's no way I'm going to be able to talk about this all with you today, but I will tell you, there's enough archaeological support. Let's just do a quick comparison. I hate to offend anybody, but if you're somebody who believes the Book of Mormon is true, well, it makes a thousand-year historical claim that occurred allegedly on the North American continent from about 600 BC to about 400 AD. It's covered in the Book of Mormon. It claims involving cities, millions of people, battles, coin systems, uh, tools, animals, um, chariots, all kinds of claims about things that were happening on the North American continent, for which we have never encountered a single archaeological find to confirm any of it. The Smithsonian has released uh, studies on this. There's just never been, you, there's no maps in the Book of Mormon because they can't locate a single city that's described in the Book of Mormon. There are maps in the Bible because those claims are made in cities that really existed, that some of them still exist. And there, you know, you, the, the coin systems, all of the stuff that could be corroborated by, and there's stuff that people doubted when they read Luke's account in the Book of Acts that only in the last hundred years have been discovered by archaeology to be true. So I think in the end, um, if you're going, I don't expect you to be able to, to confirm every detail of the New Testament. I mean, I said last time that this is a, a touch point corroboration. Corroborative evidence is always just a small fraction of the overall account. But if I don't discover anything of a thousand-year reported history, like the Book of Mormon, I am going to be suspicious. So I, uh, without going through all the different kinds of corroborative evidence, both internal and external, I cover those in the book. We talk about a third thing we talked about, which is, has it changed over time? And now how you discover this is really a kind of a police technique called the chain of custody. And what you're doing there is you're simply asking, is there an earlier version of the Jesus story that's not supernatural? Just some preaching rabbi in the first century who said some sweet things, but he never rose from the grave, never worked miracles. That's the legend that was added to the Jesus story. Well, if that's the case, every time you see the Jesus story retold, you should see it grow in its legendary status.
1: You yeah, should... and unpack that, Jim, because this is—I mean, this is a, an accusation that students get all the time—that just this was this was changed over time, that maybe. I don't know when people think it happened or when Dan Brown thinks it happened, but I mean, 300, 400 years into the Christian faith, all of a sudden people make up the view that, oh, maybe Jesus was God or something like that. I mean, help us more on this one. This one's huge.
0: Right. Well, this happens a lot of times in criminal cases where somebody will have a piece of evidence that's collected 30 years ago. And by the time we get it into the trial, someone will claim, well, that wasn't the way the evidence was 30 years ago. It's been tampered with while it's in the property room. And now you bring it into court, it's not not any good. So how do we correct that? Well, we, we ask the question, who has touched that piece of evidence over time? And when they touched it, did they report it? Did they take a picture of it? Can we see if it's changing? Well, we can get pictures of the information about Jesus over time the same way. So if you look at John, for example, who makes claims about Jesus, well, ask yourself, did John have any direct students that then repeated his claims? Because if the story is going to change, you should see that that first century student, when he talks about Jesus, does not include any of the miracles, does not include the resurrection, does not include the date that we're all suspicious of the virgin birth. All that nonsense, right? That should be out of there because that story hasn't been corrupted yet. But when you look at the students of John, Irenaeus, I mean, sorry, Ignatius, Papias, and Polycarp, and look at the writings we have from those students, that Jesus is just as miraculous as he ever was. And you look at their student, Irenaeus, Jesus is just as miraculous as he ever was. And you look at the next student, Hippolytus, Jesus is just as miraculous as he ever was. The one thing I know for sure, you could say it's not true, but you cannot say it changed over time. We got a chain of custody. We can see how this, we can every single time you dip into history and say, what's Jesus like? He's like the Jesus we know now. You don't have to believe in him. But the, but to say that the story's changed over time is just not supported by the evidence. They you can do the same thing, by the way, with the writings of Paul through Clement and Linus, the first two students that he mentions, and follow that chain of custody. You can do it through Peter, whose disciple is Mark and who founded the church in North Africa, and follow that chain of custody. So you could do this over and over and over again. You are not going to find a version of the Jesus story through the eye, from the eyewitnesses in that line, that lineage of of teacher, student, teacher, student, teacher, student, you're not going to find a version that is less supernatural. Just didn't happen. And even that chain
1: of custody um, seems to be that's great evidence for that. while well, they were really there. I mean, if we have all these other students of students of students of students, and we know when each of those students lived and died, lived and died, lived and died, well, then these gospels probably were written... And the early date that you suggest. Otherwise, we just have to assume that hundreds of years of history, just all of those dates are wrong.
0: Well, this and, is, let's just put it this way. So you can see, remember we talked about presuppositions? Presuppositions yeah. control everything in an investigation. Same is true here. So let me give you a little thought experiment. And I tried to describe it in the book in this updated version of Cold Case Christianity. If If we were to look at the Gospels, and the Gospels never included anything supernatural in them, In other words, if the gospels describing Jesus, just described a first century Jewish rabbi who was a good teacher, sweet teacher, taught the Sermon on the Mount. That's it, that's all they said. Well, based on that information we have and all of the manuscript evidence we have over the years, no one on the skeptic side or otherwise would contest anything about Jesus because that document evidence is so robust, they would have to admit he is the best attested ancient on the pages of any manuscripts. There's no one who's got more manuscript evidence treated with highest level of security, right, considered scripture, and passed down as though it's holy than Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, if there were no miracles in the descriptions of Jesus. People would say, Well, I can tell you this, that, that 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 report is accurate because there's nothing that's been protected as well as that report. Now, enter one miracle. Oh, it's garbage. Interesting. Oh, what, so what it's clear, it's not based on manuscript evidence. The the reason why we toss it out now is a presuppositional bias against the first miracle. So it's always been a bias against miracles that has caused the kind of doubt. Why do people date the Gospels later than 70, typically? Because the temple is destroyed in 70. There's no way Jesus could have accurately predicted that, so therefore, it must have been written afterwards. Even though the manuscript evidence points to an earlier date, nope, we don't believe in miracles. Therefore, it has to be written after, right? All the people who saw Jesus must have been dead because they would never have let this miracle stuff go past the first generation. So it must have been written after that generation. That's a presuppositional bias drive. That's the tail that's wagging the dog here. And it still is the tail that wags the dog. Let's go to the last category of eyewitness reliability because yep. this might be the best way to even to end our whole discussion here. Right. Is that it turns out that there's only – it's we're looking and saying, did these writers, did your eyewitness you're talking to in a criminal case or this case, do these writers have a reason to lie to me? Does this eyewitness have a reason to lie? Is there something in it for him or something in it for her? Because that bias is going to be important. If I can bring it out in trial, I can get rid of this witness in front of the jury. So the question is, well, what causes people to lie? There's only three things that cause people to lie. There's the same three things that cause people to steal, to kill to do anything you shouldn't do. There's only three motives for bad behavior. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. Now, they rest on a podium called pride, okay? Pride is what's behind everything. But if you were to, to kind of flesh that out and figure out what are the three specific ways that pride emerges in cases, uh, it's only three ways. This will help you. Because if you want to stop doing stupid things, just protect yourself in these three areas. So the first one is financial greed. A lot of stupid occurs because people want money. Second is relational or sexual lust. Money and sex are behind a lot of the murders I've worked. The third one, though, is more nuanced, and I think it captures about 70% of bad motives. And it is the pursuit of power. The pursuit of power is what happens when one gangster is disrespected by another gangster and drives over there and kills him. He disrespected me in front of these people. Pursuit of power. It's what happens when you decide that you're going to walk into a Walmart and kill 30 people who are a different color than you. What's that about? My color is more important than your color. That's a pursuit of, that's a power issue, authority. What happens when you're st- stealing money from your parents so you can support your drug habit? Well, that's because my pleasure is more important than your discomfort or your inconvenience. That's a power thing. Power isn't ends up being a huge motivator. There is no fourth category.
1: Uh, so let me ask you a question on that. I was reading that in your book. Um, how, how would you put uh, the desire for fame or just being plumb crazy? How would either one of those connect to those three? Okay, well, fame, a celebrity
0: falls into the power. Power. It's a okay. power thing. Now, crazy okay. is not a category because if, if someone was truly criminally insane, I couldn't prosecute them. So it's not, if that's the case, if someone's just crazy, well, then they, they lack a motive. That's what the definition that's of a, Okay, not a motive to lie. That's just a right, whole they, different they category. They lack a they, they, yes, right. a whole different category. But by the way, people will say that they're criminally insane or they shouldn't be prosecuted because they have this. But it turns out that that sane people do crazy things. So you don't have to be insane to do a crazy thing. Um, so we have to kind of show the jury that, yeah, this thing he did was crazy. That doesn't mean he's crazy. And that's because that, everyone would say that if they could try to get off of, of a murder. So just keep that in mind. now, why does that does that matter? because if if you're saying that disciples lied about this, well, then I know why they lied because there's only three reasons why they would have lied. They lied for money, sex or power. So where are they getting one of those three? What, what I don't see how they're benefiting. We know they didn't get rich. We know they didn't get girlfriends. As a matter of fact, their worldview actually, took those two areas and and buried them. And their worldview also is built on the one quality, which is mentioned over and over and over and over again, which is humility, which is the antidote to pride. It's the opposite of the pursuit of power is humility. And and it's clear now that there's a lot of skeptics who will say, well, yeah, but they were nobodies until they became somebodies by leading this group of Christians. Okay, but the person who wrote most of the New Testament is Paul. And Paul already had a position of power, authority, and respect as a religious Jew. He was one of the best-trained religious Jews, one of the best-trained rabbis he sat under. And he already had a position, so much so that he could draw papers to get Christians killed. In the beginning of the book of Acts, he's hunting Christians because he had the authority, power, and respect to hunt Christians for the Jews. Now, you're telling me one day he decides he's going to hop out of that position where he has authority, power, and respect with a larger group? so I can jump in with this smaller group and end up getting beat up for the next 30 years and persecuted and dying eventually because of it, when I could have easily stayed where I was and had the authority, power, and respect I had? It's possible, but it's not reasonable. And let's end with that. We have to, whenever you're looking at the evidence for Christianity, and I don't think they had any motive to lie, that's the problem. By the way, if you and I said we would be willing to die for what we believe as Christians, that would have zero evidential value. Zero, because lots of people die for what they don't know is a lie. But this is the group that would know if it's a lie. If they're willing to die for it, that has high evidential value. Ours has zero, theirs has a high value. And that's what all of them are willing to do. And we have to distinguish, and let's end it here, between what's possible and what's reasonable. We don't try to prove things in a court of law beyond a possible doubt. That standard is too high. I could never prove anything beyond a possible doubt. I can't even prove I'm talking to you right now beyond a possible doubt. This could all be, for all I know, this could be all AI generated. I don't know. Oh, you're on to us. There you go. So the point <laughs> is uh, that we we have a lower standard. It's called beyond a yep. reasonable doubt. Now, what are, what's, the diff- what's the gap? Okay, you know what's in the gap? The gap is your unanswered questions. Every case has unanswered questions. I have never been able to answer every question a jury has asked me on any case. I often know that he did it, but not how he did it. I just don't. I wasn't there. He's not confessed yet. So I, I just I can tell you that he did it. I can demonstrate, I can prove it with evidence, but I cannot tell you. So you're going kind to of have to step across. In other words, there'll be an evidence trail that leads to the suspect that points right at him, but there's a gap at the end. Those are my unanswered questions. Those are your unanswered. I'm going to ask you to step across that gap and render a verdict. We do that with every jury trial. Christianity is similar. Tons of evidence that points right to Jesus. Not to the left of him, not to the right of him, but it stops short of the conclusion because that's where your unanswered questions are. I still have unanswered questions. Why would God do it this way? That's probably one of your, why would God allow this? That's probably one of your questions. Now, I've got more than enough evidence. I'm asking you to step across the end of the evidence trail, across your unanswered questions like you do for everything else. By the way, you don't know how tumbler locks work. Yet you stick that key in your tumbler lock at home to open your door. You don't ask questions. You got a ton of it. if I asked you, can you can you draw it for me? Can you draw how that thing works? No, do you know how your car works? You still start your car every morning. People blow up in their cars. But you just do it because you're not working beyond a possible doubt. You got lots of doubts. And you, you step across the end of those doubts every day on every other issue. But when it comes to this, because this might call you to live differently, now suddenly you're stuck at the end of this evidence chain. There's more than enough evidence. Step across the end. Step across your unanswered questions. Here's the funny thing about it. As an atheist, I got questions too. How did the universe come into existence? Why does it look fine-tuned? How did life originate in the origin in the origin of life in the universe? Why does it look designed? How can we have unconscious minds and not just physical brains? How can I have free agency? How can there be an objective standard for morality? How can there be any standard by which we call something evil? I can't answer those questions either. But I held on to my atheism. Every worldview has unanswered questions. It offers a line of evidence, but it stops short of the goal. I'm just suggesting that this one has the shortest step. Not only that, this one has a step that, if it's true, will be completely filled because you'll be able to ask and answer your questions one day in front of your creator. So I think that for us, this is not an unreasonable faith, This is a reasonable faith, even though you will have to step across your unanswered questions, just like everyone else does in every other worldview. Jim, you have left us with a lot to think about
1: there. Thanks for sharing your book. Uh, Guys, you got to buy this book, uh, Cold Case Christianity. Jim, you wrote it how long ago?
0: We wrote it 10 years ago this year. We released the 10th anniversary of that book and we updated it completely, added 300 illustrations. I hope it's, uh, I think it's a better book.
1: I, I've got a copy of the new one. I didn't have a copy of the old one, but I gotta tell you those illustrations are fantastic. They like help explain your police, you know, illustrations and the detective line of thought. And then, man, it just helps when you're getting to the New Testament and you know, the arguments as you're looking at the gospels, they are really helpful. I showed them to my kids, they were getting into them. So guys, make sure you check out his book, Cold Case Christianity. Jim, how can people find you online?
0: It's so simple coldcasechristianity.com.
1: Thanks so much for being here.
0: Thank you.